This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Have you ever wondered what might be going on in the mind of a wild animal as it makes its way through a forest or sees another animal approach or rounds a bend in the trail and encounters a human? That's what the next hour is all about. Animal psychology, how to stay safe in the wild, and our connection with wild animals. I'm Chris Morgan, wildlife ecologist and host of The Wild. I hope you're having a great weekend so far. This is The Wild Hour, and we're playing archives of our podcast. I think about this stuff all the time, our relationship with nature. I know a lot of you do too. Little aside, when we released this podcast a couple of years ago, we got an email from a listener named Lauren. She'd just been up for a hike in in California, and she'd come face to face with a mountain lion. She said, the adrenaline made my mouth taste like metal. She also said, because of listening to your show and learning what to do if I ever come face to face with a wild predator, I acted quickly and calmly and was able to scare the mountain lion back up the path. Nice work, Lauren. (laughs) I'm impressed. We start this episode just outside Bellingham, Washington. I'm out in the woods near my home in Washington State, and this is some pretty wild country. I'm not someone who looks for trouble, but on my travels somehow I've been peed on by orangutans and charged by grizzly bears, treed by moose, bitten by squirrels, stalked by polar bears, and followed by wolves. I was chased by wild boar and even had my finger sliced open by a leafcutter ant once. These encounters always make me wonder not just what is going on through these animals' minds, but why. And and understanding that is key to staying safe in the wild. This episode is not about gnarly animal attacks, you know, those those hyped-up shows drive me a little crazy. They always make the animal look bad when really it's just trying to get through life. We're going to dig a little deeper. What do these eyeball-to-eyeball encounters teach us about animal behaviour and our own behaviour? And how do they help us stay safe in the wild, or sometimes right in our backyard? So there's a few things that I carry when I'm out on the trail and when I'm in bear country especially, I I always carry this stuff. Right on my waist, this is bear spray. I'll give it a little blast here to test. And this creates a cloud of capsaicin pepper and any charging bear that runs into that just really puts it out of business. It's amazingly powerful stuff and really irritates the bear, uh, but changes its mind about approaching you and charging, especially with a grizzly bear. It saves lots of lives, that stuff. So I never leave home without it. This is a knife on my belt. Always carry this around for some of that close quarters combat. (laughs) 
And then other couple of things that I carry here. This is a, a bear food cache kit. So it's basically a couple of ropes and a carabiner and a dry bag. And this is what I put my food in when I'm camping. Hoisted up 15 feet above the ground between two trees so that bears can't get at your food. That's one of the main things in bear country. So all of these items are really useful tools. But 90% of being safe in the wild is about animal psychology. And I've learned a lot about that psychology over the years by studying bears because they're super smart and complex animals and it's partly why people are so fascinated by them and when you're in bear country it's it's good to know what makes them tick because it can be pretty serious business and if you know bears you're almost ready for anything so i have a couple of stories to explain what i mean i've got a lot of experience with bears but in this episode we'll be talking about other species as well and and ways that might help you stay safe next time you're out in the woods bears are really curious they have to be and they sometimes get into scrapes but they're not mindless And it's important to remember that in an encounter. I remember this one time, we're sitting in a meadow on the coast of the Alaska Peninsula, and this is bear central. And if you sit for long enough in this place, a brown grizzly bear will usually wander by. And in this case, two bears, probably siblings, young bears, still 400 pounds, but young. And one of them decides to take a closer look at us. And in this case, I see it coming. Yeah, that's all right. Hey, that's close enough. That's close enough. He approaches slowly. He's looking right at me. That's close enough. Good bear. And he stops. Now he's digging in the ground. He's kind of pawing at the grass, but this is just displacement behavior. He's biding his time. He's basically looking at me out of the corner of his eye. He's trying to figure out if he sits above me or below me in the pecking order. Now, at this point, it's important to remember that this is coastal Alaska, and although these are technically grizzly bears they are way more tolerant than their interior grizzly cousins there's lots of food here on the coast and lots of bears so they've learned to be social and they they kind of extend that social tolerance to humans some of them which means you can end up in bizarrely close quarters the bear pushes forward a couple more steps and now now he's about eight feet away i said that's close enough okay yeah, you got to listen to me. You guys are great and friendly and all, but it's okay. I'm still on my haunches, knees on the ground, and he takes another step. I just raise up slightly, and he decides to back off. There you go. We're all learning here, aren't we, what the limits are. He seems surprised for a moment that I know what I'm doing, and then he just lies right down 15 feet away like a dog would flop in front of a fireplace. In this case, the key to being safe was not overreacting. Me being calm and authoritative was key. But it's not always obvious what to do, and sometimes things happen quickly. This next run-in was a little different. I was hosting a series for PBS Nature in bear country every day for weeks on end with cameraman Joe Pontecorvo. Hiking, camping, filming the bears. And it wasn't unusual to see dozens of bears in a day. The circumstances were unusual. It was the mating season, (laughs) late spring, and a big dominant male is is following this female he's become obsessed with. He's getting hyper-focused on her right now. And we watch him pursue her all around a meadow we're in. This big male is all worked up, so it's difficult to know what he might do. Other bears are scattering left and right, 
and, and suddenly the female makes a break for it, away from him, and circles behind us just 15 feet away. We should be careful as well here, Joe. She's using us as cover. It's, it's best for us to just stay put, stay low, and don't move. Just then, I see the male getting closer. This is going to be close, Joe. Joe spins the camera around, and right then, boom, the bear breaks into a full-on charge right at us, and the acceleration is amazing. Okay, okay, it's okay. He veers off it's the last okay. second, just about it's 12 okay. feet away. We're not touching her. Just like most bear charges. He'd rather just give a warning than actually attack. It's all right, but... A bear charging like this is telling you he wants you gone because you're a threat of some sort. I talk to him. It's okay. Always a good thing to do in this situation. It helps identify us as humans because he's pumped full of testosterone and not thinking straight. Talking also helps to calm him down. He's pretty wound up. The take-home here is that this bear has only one thing on his mind, the female. The best thing to do was make it clear we didn't want to get in his way. I stayed low, I came in tight next to Joe, I used a firm voice, but knew he was more focused on that female than doing any harm to us. Got the pulse up, though. So two really different encounters with brown bears. Dozens of scenarios can play out, and, and remember, grizzly bears found in the interior are a different matter altogether. You never want to get yourself this close to them. Even 100 yards is often too close because their social tolerance is way lower. It's easy to see how grizzly bear behavior can be misinterpreted. Their emotional range is huge. They're incredibly intelligent. Some people think they're not far behind a primate, and you know they're all individuals with different personalities just like us. Some people would jump to aggression, but others might take a more pacifist approach. So, when it comes to being safe, like with any wild animal, trying to understand and even predict their motivation is, is absolutely key. If you look online, you'll find thousands of wildlife encounters that people have posted, from hilarious to horrifying. I picked out a few to tease apart some fascinating behavior that all relates to us staying safe. Here's a clip that's had millions of views. I'm walking backwards on the trail back to the camp. A man is walking down a trail in Alaska. He's walking backwards and the camera is wobbling a lot because he's being followed by a big brown bear. It's a female and she has two young cubs with her. The mom and the cubs keep following me and are walking at least as fast as I am. The cubs are small, six months old or so, and the man is pretty tense, as you can hear. And what I don't want to do as I'm walking backwards is stumble. So I will keep walking backwards. She's walking pretty briskly on this really well-worn trail through the trees, and her cubs are trying to keep up. Oh, come on, guys, give me a break. If you watch the video carefully, there's some key body language going on. There, right right there. She looks behind her, over her shoulder, looking away from the man in front of her. This is not an aggressive mother. She's not following this guy. She's way more concerned about the bears behind her than she is with him. The males sometimes kill cubs, and she knows it. So she's distancing herself from any other bears behind. So what 
seems initially to millions of viewers like a big mama bear pursuing a man down a narrow trail isn't that at all. In fact, I know that trail pretty well, and if he had just stepped off it, she would have walked right by. In other words, like knowing her motivation would have changed everything. Always give a bear a clear escape route. None of us like to be cornered. This is mom and the two cubs now. They've, this is by the campsite. And this is, uh, they're at the water's edge. So in a bear encounter, it, it helps to remember that every situation's different and every bear. And often just letting the bear make the first move is best. And each of the three North American bears is different. Generally, black bears are they're basically like 300-pound raccoons. Even the mothers don't usually get defensive of their cubs. Not like a grizzly bear. One time I saw a female interior grizzly bear 100 yards away down a long trail in the Canadian Rockies. She had cubs, and that 100 yards didn't seem far enough. I got well off the trail to let her pass, and all was well. You see, grizzly bears evolved to stand their ground on the open prairie, whereas black bears evolved in forests, like this. So they find safety in the top of a tree. And polar bears are something else altogether. They're basically designed to do one thing really, really well, and that is snatch seals from the surface of the ice. Meat is all that's on their mind. On the north slope of Alaska once, I had to dive into a boat pretty fast because a polar bear was quickly approaching. He'd caught my scent and was coming in pretty quickly. So I've seen it firsthand, this behavior. And I've guided a lot into polar bear country, and I'll, I'll never forget the advice someone gave me in my early days. Remember two things, Chris. Carry a large caliber rifle and always travel with someone much older and slower than you. <laughs> Good advice. So a few safety tips for next time you're in bear country, especially black bear and, and grizzly country like here in the Pacific Northwest. Carry bear spray. It's saved a lot of lives. In fact, it's way more effective than a firearm. And just know your bears. Know what they're about. And make noise in bear country. You know, give them a warning that you're approaching. They, they generally want to avoid you as much as you want to avoid them. Uh, hey, bear! Every once in a while does the trick. And being alert is really important. You know, read the landscape a little bit like a bear does. Look for bear sign, look for scat, look for tracks. You can look for hair on rub trees and food caches where a bear has buried some food. And it helps you know that bears are around and what they're doing. So it kind of keeps you one step ahead. Plus, it, it brings the environment alive in really fun ways. You notice so much more around you. And if you run into a bear, talk to it, like I did in those earlier encounters, and avoid eye contact. And if you're unlucky enough to be physically attacked, something so rare, but not impossible, know when you should fight back or when you should play dead. It's not just the type of bear, but the type of encounter, and often depends on whether a bear is reacting to being surprised or behaving in a predatory way. And it's why understanding how their minds operate is so important. The bears know the rules, and so should we. Next up, we're going to look at what you do when you encounter a mountain lion. That's after the break. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one. 
asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. Working on bears and, and other big carnivores has opened so many windows for me into the minds of animals, but also into our own psyches. When we face off with a big mammal, we're, we're tapping into some primal stuff. Your ancient synapses kick in and your hypothalamus gets you ready to fight back or run like hell. We're all pretty much apes just below the surface. There's a species here in the Pacific Northwest that seems to trigger that primal fear. Just about more than any other. I've only seen six of them in the wild, and only two of those without a lot of help from a tracking dog. But occasionally, something like this happens. There's the mountain lion. There's the mountain lion right here. He's just staring me down. Well, the guy turns and runs for just a few steps and then turns back, and now the cat is right there. It closed the distance in one second. I am much bigger than you. I'm way bigger than you. You should never turn your back on a cat like this and definitely don't run away. Even a few steps. It's like a house cat chasing a ball of twine. You just become irresistible. This is unbelievable. He's talking to the cat in a way that you might talk to a bear you've inadvertently surprised to calm it down, but that is the wrong tactic here. Go! Good, that's better. This guy needs to dominate. It's time to get really aggressive and stand on something to look tall. He should be waving his arms and shouting and throwing rocks and always keeping his eye on that cat. But this cat seems completely unafraid. The cat wanders away, but then... Okay, this cat is coming back at me. At this point, the man starts to shout a bit louder. Stay back, stay there. And you can see the cat stop just for a moment and flinch just a little bit. It's the first sign of nerves. And the man could have really made the most of that situation. He could have thrown his bike at it and just to really drive the point home. And this would have been a good time to use the bear spray. And, you know, if he was carrying a stick, it's always a great idea, you know, to wield that stick. Anything that gives you the upper hand. But I'm not, I'm not surprised this guy's nervous. I would be too. But at times like this, you've got to harness that nervous energy and get dominant. The cat turns. Maybe he's decided it's not worth his time. But the, there's one more telltale sign. Look at that. The cat doesn't look back. Not for a moment. He just walks away nonchalantly without a care. He doesn't even look over its shoulder. And that's a sure sign of confidence. The human hasn't spooked him at all. This looks like a young cougar. It could be a male who's daunted at the prospect of finding his own territory and feeding himself after leaving his mum. They've evolved to hunt deer, so like any cat, they're curious and they're really observant. It's how they've succeeded and become the most widespread big cat in the world. And if you've seen the cat, the chances are that the cat saw you first. Sometimes an encounter can come from the most unexpected place at the most unexpected time. In this video clip, there's a small group of people gathered at a dock and they're looking into the water. 
What you can see to start with is this pair of big eyes peering above the surface. It's quite big. That's huge. This is a stellar sea lion near Vancouver in Canada. Someone's rubbing his fingers over the head of the sea lion like he would to attract a house cat. The sea lion's curiosity is piqued. Then the sound of a little girl shouting excitedly seems to interest the sea lion even more. It thrusts out of the water towards her, surprises everyone. The girl looks about eight years old. It's starting to look like this animal's been fed before. They see lions cruising around gently. And then, as the little girl sits down on the dock rail at the edge of the water, the sea lion launches. And in less than a second, oh my God, oh my God, grabs the back of her dress and pulls the girl into the water. She's dragged under, but a guy dives right into the water to save her. And people's arms stretch down really fast and hoist them both up. And the sea lions disappeared. It's startling to watch. You've got to think, what was this sea lion doing? What was it thinking? It was impulsive behavior, probably frustration. And it turns out these people were feeding the sea lion just before this incident. Never a good thing to do with any wild animal. It's a species that always seems pretty innocuous, but all it takes is one animal in a specific situation and a particular frame of mind, and things can turn quickly. This one became a viral sensation, 43 million views and counting. What is it about our fascination with fear that we have, us apes? Some encounters remind us where we're from in the most profound way. For this last clip, we leave the Pacific Northwest and descend into the rainforests of Uganda. Oh, no way, John. No way. A tourist named John is, is here to see the gorillas, but he probably didn't expect this. As he's walking down the trail to breakfast, a family of endangered mountain gorillas emerges from around the bend on the same trail. So John sits down on the ground to let them pass. Spot on, perfect submissive behavior with this species. The silverback is just behind you. He sat, he sat a meter behind you. And there are three babies squashed between him and you. John's doing the right thing. He has his head bowed low, partially covering his face with his arms. Look at this little one touching your hair. Bit of pre it's, it's actually grooming. You can hear the silverback grunt. Kind of helps maintain communication with his troop. And sometimes the guides do the same thing. This kind of like, mm, mm, mm. help to sort of reassure the gorillas that it's safe, that they're in good company, I guess. It's that black, that black shirt of yours, and the silverback. Now the little one's climbing up to get a closer look at your hair. He's on the his back. Really, I think curiosity is the driving force here, and a teaching moment for the young, while they're enjoying the safety of the silverback. <laughs> John's clutching his camera like a white knuckle ride, but not taking pictures and, and not making eye contact. He's exuding humility and submission. He has to. The silverback probably weighs 450 pounds, and, and now he's sitting just a couple of feet behind John. And then it gets even more extraordinary. Here comes a female. Just pulled a stick out. Coming forward with the, they're the lips, the lips. She gently rubs his ear and head really tender just watch your glasses 
And then suddenly, the silverback gets up. He glances momentarily at John, and wow, it's suddenly so clear how big he is. He, he looks three times bigger than John. Unbelievable. And he moves away down the trail. Seems like he's satisfied with his experience with a human. And his family falls in line right behind, and they all break away. John's left behind with this most like joyous face, mouth wide open in total wonder, absolute magic. Sometimes doing the right thing in an encounter pays off in all the right ways, especially one like this, with one of our closest wild relatives. Our survival used to depend upon it, knowing about the wild and the animals we might run into there. Sometimes it still does. There's a tendency, I think, for us to generalize. All bears do this, all sea lions do that, but there are so many nuances, so many amazing layers to figure out. Just as we all behave differently, so do animals. I think it all comes down to one main thing, mutual respect. So grab that bear spray, a stick and a friend who's slightly slower than you, (laughs) and stay safe in the wild. I hope you picked up some good tips from that episode. There are as many different types of animal encounters out there as there are animals sometimes, I think, and humans. So there's no fixed rules, just guidelines. For me, it's partly that unpredictability that you feel when you're out in nature that keeps me returning to the woods and the mountains. I like feeling prepared. I I like feeling like I have to pay attention too. Maybe a bit of fear is good for all of us. That primal feeling. But I have to say, I don't seek danger. That's different. I'm not someone chasing adrenaline. I don't feel the need to bump into wild animals in awkward situations. It's just really a desire to be connected deeply to wild places and wild creatures. And I've loved also becoming an expert in some of these areas of work, like wildlife encounters, especially with the bears and cougars here in Washington State. The more you learn, the braver you can afford to be, I guess. Knowledge is power, right? And with more and more people heading into nature, it's on all of us to gain that knowledge and be prepared. Having said that, stick me somewhere out of my comfort zone, like a swamp in Florida facing off an angry alligator, and I really have no idea what to do. (laughs) That happened in February, as we were literally up to our waists in the swamps of the Everglades tracking a 15-foot python. I'll never forget the sound of that alligator grumbling at us. It's faint, but you can hear it in our Burmese Python podcast episode. But above all of this is the wonder I feel when I'm out in nature, a sense of awe, even in the simple things like the veins in a maple leaf. Or one thing that stops me in my tracks every time is is when a hummingbird buzzes by your head at high speed. Incredible. I've had that wonder since I was a little kid, and somehow I still have it, I'm happy to say. This brings us to our next episode. The first one was about being safe in the wild. And this next one is more about the encounters that bring a sense of that wonder I'm talking about. And we're in good company. The renowned author Richard Louvre is an authority on this stuff, including that balance between fear and wonder. I think you'll enjoy hearing his perspective. That's coming up next.
One day, on Kodiak Island in Alaska, Richard Louvre was walking down a narrow trail near a cabin where he was staying. This is a very wild area. Per capita bear population is huge compared to humans. And these are the Alaskan brown bears. These are the biggest of the grizzlies, I believe. They are. And like any bear, you don't want to surprise these grizzlies. Richard was all alone as he made his way to the local lodge. He wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. He was busy looking for something in his wallet. Suddenly, I stop in my tracks because I'm stopped by two blazing eyes that are looking right into mine right in front of me, on the path. Fortunately for Richard, this wasn't an Alaskan brown bear. It was a fox. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I, as I describe it, I thought I was almost l- looking into a parallel universe. I could, It was almost seen, like seeing planets in its eyes and stars. And I know that sounds woo-woo. It wasn't that literal, but I saw something there. Maybe you've also had a moment like this, a moment where you felt a connection with another species. It could have been a wild animal like a fox or a bird, or even your dog. And it's in these moments where there is something, some understanding that happens between man and beast. When I was talking to the fox, I said, uh, you know, I'm going to step forward here, and I did. And the fox, not two feet in front of me, eases over to my side and then follows me up the path, side by side. We walked up the path until the fox turned off the path and went into the high weeds and disappeared. Richard Louvre is a world authority on humans' relationship with the natural world, and his work has uncovered so much about this mysterious bond and how transformative it can be for our mental, our physical and spiritual health. How nature can help us look at things differently and even provide an antidote for loneliness. You know, maybe the fox was just telling me to pay attention. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Maybe the fox was just telling me to pay attention. I love that so much. You know, I think we miss so many messages from animals and the world of nature. And every species is different. They have different cognitive abilities. And some species are smarter than others, capable of processing more. Some species are more inclined to be aggressive and others maybe more trusting. I can sit a foot from a little nuthatch bird on my feeder right at my house here, but the Stella's jays scarper, squawking away angrily if I get even 40 feet away. Completely different species, completely different personalities. But I've also found that there are so many differences within wild animal species too. Lots of individual variation, just like with humans. We're all different. Many wild animals are too. One time up in Alaska, I'm hiking up over this sand dune into a meadow, and boom, right in front of me are two huge grizzly brown bears, both heads down next to each other, grazing on the sedges about 50 feet away. They're probably siblings. I stop in my tracks to let them make the first move, usually a good plan. They see me, 
One of them stands up. I'm not sure if it's going to charge at me or what, but it doesn't. It turns around and bolts at like 30 miles an hour in the opposite direction. The other bear looks up at me kind of nonchalantly and is just meh and goes right back to chomping on the grass, head down. Couldn't care less that I was there. Like most animals, every bear's different. I remember there was this study done years ago about bears' personalities. This was scientific research. And some of the words that they used to describe their study animals, these individual bears, were so varied. Uh, words like playful, patient, uh, shy, short-tempered, and even happy. It really stuck with me. You don't usually hear science use these words to describe animal traits, but they were spot on. Okay, back to the show. Listen out for an animal encounter you don't often hear. A giant Pacific octopus. I've followed Richard Liu's writings for years. He's all about getting us back to nature, spending time outdoors. It's fascinating stuff. You might have come across his book, Last Child in the Woods, or heard a phrase I use all the time, nature deficit disorder. That was Richard. I was in a bookstore recently when his new book caught my eye. The title is Our Wild Calling. But it was the subtitle that really grabbed me. How connecting with animals can transform our lives and save theirs. As someone who's fortunate enough to enjoy that connection with wild animals, I wanted to hear more about how we can all be more aware of it. Richard argues that we're at a loss in our modern world because, as he believes, humans no longer spend enough time with our natural curiosity. He blames technology and what he calls antisocial media. The more high-tech our lives become, and they will get more high-tech, the more nature we need as a balancing agent. And there's a lot of studies that show that literally physiologically we need to balance what technology does to us. That doesn't make technology bad. But it does suggest that if that's all we do, that's all we become. The B word is something that comes up for me too, the balance word. And I I always turn to nature for for lessons in that balance and and ecology. And I'm always talking about how nature can bring that balance to people. And you just do it just so eloquently in in your books. Um, Why do you think we are getting more lonely following on from the, you know, the technology and overconnection? I mean, why do you think that we, that you feel that we're getting more lonely? And your your anti-social media phrase, I love, uh, that connects into this as well, doesn't it? But why do you think it's happening? Well, that's one of the major themes in our wild calling. Uh, It's about the rise of human loneliness uh, that many medical folks uh, now describe as an epidemic. Not everybody agrees with that word, but many of them use it. They say this is a serious thing. And that loneliness may soon outrank obesity as a cause of early death. That's what some of the medical folks are saying. And by the way, one of the most disturbing studies that I report on in this book is a study of generational loneliness. Remember, probably, you know, I may be a little older than you, but uh, you remember how it was supposed to be elderly people who were the loneliest? Mm Mm-hmm. This study looked at generational loneliness, starting with the greatest generation, baby boomers, and on down, Gen X and all of that, millennials. Um, what they found is that the, lone, the, the, the younger the person was, the younger the generation was, the lonelier they were. Now, what does that say about a society in which the younger you are, the more likely you are to be lonely? 
Right, despite I, the hyper-connectedness, that's, that's shocking really, isn't it? It just, I, I guess they could look beyond that, couldn't they, and think, no, I'm not lonely, I'm technologically connected to lots of people, but that's not the definition of not being lonely, is it? No, and, um, you know, people like to blame Facebook and, and all of that, and I think there's plenty of blame to go around for that, but I think it's uh, rooted in an even deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. As a species, we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking tells us that may not be a good idea to find? It's because we don't want to be alone in the universe. Now, religion pay, plays a, a role in this need to not be alone. But the irony is that we are not alone, not on this earth. We're surrounded by an ongoing conversation, an ongoing, what I call the whisper, of our fellow creatures on this earth. And the more one looks into the nature of that conversation, the more complex it gets, the more interesting it gets. And we can look to that conversation of other animals as a source of healing. Animals as a source of healing. In his book, Richard talks about a study from the University of Exeter Medical School. It looked at the therapeutic value of wild animals. The people who participated in the study, when they were in a park and detected more biodiversity, more species, they reported something curious, a greater sense of well-being. Richard says that most of the time, though, we're kind of unaware of nature, even when it's right under our nose. We're surrounded by intimacy, but we don't tap into it. We don't notice. We don't pay attention. That's not true of everybody. Some people do, and I bet the ones that you know that do are extraordinary people. Yes. And when you say this species loneliness, by alone, do you mean just it's important for us to know that there are other species out there, or is seeing and interacting with those other species important as well? I think interacting with those species with all of the senses that we can muster and um, we have lots of these types of senses that we spend much of the day, and so do our kids, in their learning environments, just looking at that screen, living in the fiction that we can go anywhere in the world through the Internet. Well, we don't take our senses with us when we do that, and we spend a lot of time blocking out most of our senses for, you know, I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like the very definition of being less alive. What parent wants their child to be less alive? I don't know many. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so this really is fundamentally about being more alive. You know, the, the way it works for me, the place where I come alive and uh, notice the things around me, um, and it was very literal to start with, was just being in the woods tracking bears and, you know, getting very good at that and looking at the world through the eyes of a grizzly bear that I'm tracking, whether it was a, a subtle turned over rock or scratch marks on a tree or the hair that a bear has left behind on a, a rub tree, all of those things. And what I found over time was doing that so much, I came away from those that experience in the field and started to apply it in life without really feeling and knowing that I was doing it and just became more aware and more just sort of cognizant of the things going on around me. It was very, very interesting. I think about it all the time because I, I, I like to think I'm someone who listens and takes takes note of what's happening around me. I think I have the, the, the bears to think for that. It's been a pretty interesting journey. Well, you're not alone in that. That's a great story. For his book, Richard collected a lot of stories from people 
about their experiences with wild animals, memorable ones, and even stories that shifted a person's perspective in some pretty profound ways. One of the most vivid stories he told me was about his friend Paul Dayton. Who's an oceanographer at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And he talks about uh, when he was in college, actually in Seattle, he was going to school at the University of Washington, I'm pretty sure. Oh, God, I was a real stud. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I was just a normal student. That's Paul Dayton. He's now in his late 70s. Paul's close encounter with an animal, a giant Pacific octopus, happened when he was scuba diving off San Juan Island near the U.S.-Canadian border in the Pacific Northwest. After hearing Paul's story from Richard, I was blown away. I had to hear it from Paul himself. So we tracked him down at his home in San Diego and called him up. When I tell people the story, they think, oh, that must have been scary. I think back at it with a a very pronounced warm feeling. It's actually one of my favorite memories of my life. The diving in those days was much simpler. We didn't have sea view gauges. We had no idea how much air was in our tank. Paul Dayton was diving alone. And when we ran out of air, we would just breathe up. Uh, As you come up, the air in the tank expands a bit and you get little sips of air. He was fairly deep and the water was dark, typical for this part of the world. Probably a little eerie. And I was on my hands and knees watching one starfish attack another one, which is pretty exciting, but sort of slow motion. And the um, tank ran out of air. And um, again, at this point, that isn't that much of a problem. You just come up. And so I got was on my hands and knees uh, gathering my stuff and put it into my dive bag. And he was down there and he was staring at the, at the bottom and he was turning things over with his little shovel. And suddenly he feels something very large come above him and stop. You know, at first, you know, what's that? You know, as I got all dark and then, you know, I saw an arm. Oh, crap, it's an octopus. And um, it's all over my head. At first, it was fine. Paul didn't panic. But then the octopus started to wrap her tentacles around his head and his face. And he couldn't get them off. Her legs were enveloping him. She had eight of them, and I only had two. And they're really strong. They, they look like they're squishy. But they're, when you're trying to fight with one, they're solid steel. Paul tried really hard to dislodge the octopus, to peel it off him. But he was no match for those strong arms. And remember, he's already running low on oxygen. And I realized I was never going to dislodge it that way without any air. So I relaxed, let it pull me down. I pushed off as hard as I could and pushed the octopus and me off the the bottom. As they go up through the column of water, he can feel the octopus moving around his body. And as he does that, he can feel the razor-sharp beak going around his neck. Octopuses feed through this beak. They use it to crush crabs and other food. And the beak has a poison gland too. And this is a big animal, 14 feet long and probably 80 pounds. A real sense of doom was settling in on Paul now. So probably at this point, I got more seriously concerned about getting rid of her. 
and it all, I also at that point was realizing that I wasn't going to wrestle with her. I came up with the solution of relaxing. I don't think I had any other choice. And about that time, the octopus started releasing him slowly, relaxing. And he relaxed, Paul relaxed. Because I knew that she was not going to drown me anyway. I could still get my air. And so as I got a couple more sips of air coming up, and we'd come up really slowly. You have to breathe out really carefully when you're coming up. You come up slowly under those conditions. So we came up really slowly, and, and I was able to get enough air to clear my mask a little bit. And I saw that she had sort of pulled away from me. And as I cleared my mask, I could see her eyes looking right in my eyes. And we held that gaze of looking at each other all the way up to the surface. And then they both hit the, the surface of the water. And Paul ripped off his mask, gasping for air. And the octopus sank down just below the surface and was still looking at him. They still had eye contact. And then this is the best part of the story. And then she started to fold up her arms and, and make like an airplane. It was the, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um, is she backed off and got those really long arms streamed out behind her. She looked like a space shuttle before there was a space shuttle. It was just gorgeous, that brick red uh, octopus, always maintaining the eye contact with me. And zooms down into the dark darkness. But she didn't just go straight down. She circled slowly, and I circled with her, maintaining the eye contact. What does Paul do? He puts his mask back on. And then took a deep breath and dove with her and went down as far as I could, just because it was so much fun. I went down probably 20 feet or so. I went down quite a ways because I'd had a good breath of air. And that was, it was enough for maybe two or three circles as she went around me. You know, it was a slow goodbye. Now, I said, Paul, <laughs> why would you do that? I had this this feeling that, that I was interacting with a really interesting animal that I didn't know I could interact with. And uh, I felt unchallenged and safe and everything, and I didn't want to break it off. It was just too interesting. And it was profoundly moving to him. It has stayed with him his whole life. I'd made a friend, you know, in very fast order. You know, I thought of her as a friend, although I imagine in her mind it was, well, that's not a very good-looking crab. I'll, I'll leave it. But um, in my mind, you know, we had a, a some sort of, of relationship that I enjoyed and I appreciate and I remember fondly. What strikes me is that Paul tells this story like it was yesterday. It was nearly 60 years ago. This fond memory for Paul lives in a place that Richard describes as the habitat of the heart. That thing that happens that is so mysterious that so many of the people who tell their stories in this book describe one way or another. This moment of connection that is transcendent. Um, there's no name for that. And uh, Martin, there is some vernacular for people. Martin Buber, the great philosopher, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Um, Martin, <laughs> Martin Buber 
wrote a great essay called I and Thou, and it's about people. And he said, basically, you and I don't exist. What exists is between us. He considered that a kind of electricity, that relationship between us that some people call God. That's what so many of the people, whether it was an octopus or a bear or, you know, a, a family of raccoons in the backyard or their dog, again and again, people describe moments like that. Uh, and I consider that the habitat of the heart, that, that between place, between us and another, a member of another species. Mm-hmm. And we spend all kinds of effort uh, trying to preserve the physical habitat, as we should, and we invest hardly anything in preserving and nurturing the habitat of the heart. Everything depends on the habitat of the heart. If one of those habitats goes, so does the other one. Hmm. So I think in some ways this may define part of the future of environmentalism to recognize that. Talk about your connection with nature. Where did it start? Because you've been amazing at pulling other people's stories together, and I'm keen to hear where it started for you. Well, the kids on the bus used to call me uh, nature nature boy, so I didn't know whether to be embarrassed by that or not, but it sounded good to me. Um, I lived at the edge of Kansas City, uh, both the Kansas edge and, uh, and the Missouri edge. And I spent a lot of my boyhood in the woods, in the fields, along the creek with my dog, a collie named Banner. And my parents may not have known where I was, but Banner knew where I was. And he was an extraordinary animal that I had, I had a sense then, and I still have it, that he was teaching me some kind of ethics. I said that a few years ago to an animal behavioralist who immediately dismissed me as anthro- you're anthropomorphizing your dog, you're romanticizing Banner. And uh, I said, no, I really, I had this feeling he was teaching me ethics in his behavior. We'd go out in the front lawn and he would protect the little dogs. There were no f- fences then in our neighborhood. He, he would protect little dogs from bigger dogs. He, he stopped a big dog from attacking a, a woman who lived up the street who came down hmm. in tears to thank us. He pulled me out of a creek, out of the ice, or at least that's what my memory says. Our close relationship with the domesticated version of man's best friend goes back a long way, over 10,000 years. But it goes back even further to our wild past through the dog's ancient relative, the wolf. And when I was doing the research for Our Wild Calling, I ran into some research, in the German research, that there are two theories as to why gray wolves uh, evolved into, in some cases, dogs. All dogs come from gray wolves. And I, um, uh, you know, one theory is that we domesticated them. We threw them the bone beyond the campfire, and they came closer to us. Uh, The other theory is, and I think it's equally probably as valid, is they domesticated us. Hmm. We, We followed them as they followed the herd, we saw them working cooperatively, teamwork. We also saw, and we probably ate some of their leftovers. It wasn't just our leftovers that fed them. Their leftovers probably f- fed us. Richard links it back to the ethics he felt his dog was teaching him as a kid. And wolf families. We also watched their families. Wolves have incredibly uh, good families. Uh, so in that sense, the, these researchers actually use the E word. This is ethics. This, these are animal ethics. And um, I think that our ancestors learned some ethics from wolves, possibly. Uh, and that has passed down tens of thousands of years to my dog, Banner. 
and he was teaching me. It's not just ethics that we might be learning from our canine friends. Richard speculates that they influence our ability to cooperate, our sense of order, and even our ability to love. There is so much we can learn from nature. After all, we're still a very young species, so maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that our connection with wild animals is so fresh in our history and in our minds. But I want to be clear, Richard isn't saying you should head out and seek a face-to-face encounter with a cougar or a poisonous snake or an octopus, but maybe just be more aware when out in nature. And I never say that nature is, is safe and we should take it for granted. In fact, that's one of its, one of its attractions. It was for me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, th- th- much of this is based on the study of awe, the science of awe. And uh, awe usually happens when people are outside their comfort zone and sometimes when they're in danger. Do you feel like the world needs more awe? Yes, uh, it, it really conspires against us uh, in many ways to kill awe. And that's the essence of, of wonder. Uh, all, all spiritual life comes from wonder. And where does wonder happen? It happens usually for a kid outdoors, crawling through the weeds to the edge where the trees begin and turning over a rock and looking under that rock and realizing maybe for the first time that he or she is not alone in the world. Richard Louvre is the author of Our Wild Calling. We have more information about his book on our website, thewildpod.org. Well, that's our Wild Hour for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. But before we go, have you had a wild animal encounter that you'd like to tell us about? Because we'd love to hear it drop us a line at thewild at kuw.org and we may share them next week. It's really fun to be sharing our podcast stories with you this way. If you've enjoyed this hour of The Wild, we've got a lot more stories like this on our podcast, The Wild with Chris Morgan. You can find it at kuw.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you guessed it, wherever you get your podcasts. We promise to take you to wondrous places to meet really fascinating wild animals and people with stories you'll want to tell your friends. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producers are Matt Martin and Lucy Suchek. Jim Gates is our editor. This broadcast version is produced by Brandy Fullwood. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Bob Yellowlees, Barbara Stallman, Julian John Hansen, and Annie Mize. Our production team includes Paul Bikis, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Ginotti Boyle, Tatiana Latre, Kara McDermott, Darcy Riggin Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. We'll be back with more of The Wild with me, Chris Morgan, next weekend on KUOW. Take good care of yourselves, each other, and our unique and beautiful planet. Thanks so much for listening.
Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.